What role does NK cells play in fighting cancer? And how can we use them as a cellular therapy? And what role do they play in combination with other therapies? Welcome to the Cell Therapy Podcast by Kite Gilead. I'm your host, Mike Barnkop, and that's some of the topics we'll be discussing today. To explain and explore the role of NK cells as a, as a cellular therapy, I'm particularly pleased to, to say that we have three knowledgeable guests on the show today. Dr. Annika Wagner is an assistant professor at the Division of Hematology at Karolinska Institute in uh, Stockholm, and she's particularly interested in advancing the use of genetically modified NK cells in, in different immunotherapeutic uh, settings and approaches. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Evren Alishi, who is head of the Gene and Cell Therapy Group, also at the Division of Hematology at Karolinska Institute uh, in Stockholm. And he's played a pivotal role in, in pioneering NK cell therapy against uh, multiple myeloma and has been heavily involved in, in, in some of the first clinical studies using gene-modified cells in, in Sweden. And as our final guest, I want to welcome Dr. Sigrid Skoland, who is a group leader at Oslo University Hospital and Department of, of Cancer Immunology Institute for Cancer Research, where she focuses on developing precision medicine for uh, B-cell malignancies, in particular um, chronic lymphatic uh, leukemia. Um, I want to welcome you all and, and thank you all for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. We're very excited. Great. Well, I... So today we're going to be talking about NK cells, and uh, I thought we should perhaps start off with a bit of a, uh, an introduction to what uh, they actually are and, and why they are interesting as a cellular therapy. And, and Evren, I was, I was hoping perhaps uh, we could start with some, uh, some, some basics. Can you, can you explain what NK cells are and, and what role they play in the immune system? Sure. Natural killer cells are one of the first responders in your uh, against viral pathogens and transform cells in your body. Uh, they not only that, but they also exert a significant amount of uh, protection through your uh, antibodies and antibody-mediated recognition, what we call antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So they are a significant population. They are around uh, 5 to 20 percent of circulating white blood cells uh, in your body. And uh, they also have a significant amount of tissue resident population. They're a major tissue resident population in your body as well, where they can control both viral infections, but also vascularization, tissue development, various different roles. And K-cells have been discovered in 1974, 1975 by Rolf Kissling, Eva Klein, at a, I think it was a European Journal of Immunology paper. And Rolf has then defined it in his thesis in 1975 at Karolinska. At the same time, Herberman and colleagues on the state side identified the same population, calling them natural killer cells. Since then, uh, I guess the first decade, people were thinking, is this an experimental artifact or is this a real thing? Uh, basically, white blood cells that can kill without prior sensitization. It turns out they are real. We have them. Uh, we see them, we can actually observe their activity and their function, uh, functional profile, and uh, they can uh, also 
uh, be utilized in the context of immunotherapy, adoptive immunotherapy in infectious diseases and cancer. Cancer has been spearheading, uh, mainly gained a lot of momentum by early 2000s, uh, spearheaded by Perugia Group and colleagues there uh, in Italy. At the same time, uh, uh, in Minneapolis, University of Minnesota, led by Jeff Miller and colleagues. And here we have been more uh, looking into characterization of NK cells before we uh, dived into uh, therapeutic potential. Yeah, that, that that's great. And it, it seems to me, uh, and perhaps I'm, I've just been a bit naive, but it seems to me there's a whole sort of flurry of new interesting articles coming out almost every month now about NK cells and their roles in different tissues and, and, and settings. Annika, can you perhaps tell me a little bit about sort of the, the, the standard life of an NK cell? Where do they come from? How long do they live? And do do they sort of get educated by their cells like we know from, from other immune cells? Uh, or or how, how do they, what, what's the standard life of an NK cell, basically? I think there's no standard life for, in, for all NK cells because they're so different in so many different subtypes. But, but generally speaking, NK cells are um, granular lymphocytes that develop in the bone marrow from hematopoietic stem cells. And uh, then they leave um, the bone marrow to patrol the body for different kind of aberrant cells, infected cells, virus infected cells, tumor cells, or simply stressed cells. Um, but they can also migrate, as Evan mentioned, they can migrate to different tissues and become tissue resident uh, NK cells there um, with different functions uh, other than just um, um, looking for infected cells. And I know you've you've been a bit interested in, in sort of the, um, the expression of, of, of PD-1, which is, of course, very important for tumor immunology in general. Um, can you tell me a bit about like what role PD-1 plays on NK cells? Um, so PD-1 has been uh, mainly uh, researched in the context of T-cell exhaustion. It's um, um, an inhibitory molecule, a checkpoint molecule, uh, best known uh, for the role in T-cell biology, which comes up after or during T cell activation, and kind of limits their their, their uh, activation activation potential, which can be seen by some um, or it's sometimes described as ex exhaustion of T cells, but it's also kind of a protective mechanism for the cells them themselves to not become too exhausted, but also for the the body so that they don't start attacking um, other cells. And NK cells also express PD one probably in similar context that is within the tumor microenvironment and inhibitory cues that are derived uh, from the tumor and tumor-associated immune cells. And we can use this expression, so it's inhibitory in nature, limiting the, the cytotoxic potential of T cells and NK cells. And we can use that in therapy by um, administering antibodies to block this interaction between PD-1 and its ligands, thereby kind of releasing the break or kind uh, of these cells and, and making them longer active and more active. So, so that that sounds like they have a very similar role as on T cells, which I think perhaps a lot of people are familiar with. Um, is that is that correct? Um, I would say we don't know yet. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Research <laughs> into PD one on in, expression on NK cells is, is is fairly new. A lot of it comes from um, from the observation that PD one is primarily expressed on tumor 
resident NK cells, and a lot of um, the results are also derived from mouse models. So I think the future will tell. Um, but in our recent paper, we have seen that there are different subsets of NK cells expressing CD, uh, PD-1. Um, one kind of showing the classical signs of exhaustion and limited function, but there's also another subset um, expressing PD-1 with uh, a lot of genes co-expressing a lot of genes that are important for cytotoxicity and interferon response. Um, so that we're very interested in, in into these different subsets of NK cells within the microenvironment. Yeah, I think you touched on a very interesting point here, which is, is when you start reading the NK literature, it's clear that there's there's differences in how sort of, as you say, different subset of NK cells act. To your mind, when you sort of got about this, what sort of the major categories of, of NK cell subsets are and, and what's the differences between them? Is it sort of some are memory-like or some are more sort of effector-like? Or what, what's the what sort of the categories we're at here? So there are, there are different categories of, of NK cell subsets. One of them is kind of their uh, residency. Where are they? Which organs? But also within different organs or within the blood, we have different subsets of NK, NK cells. Some that um, show a different expression of surface markers um, and therefore can migrate to different tissues or, or interact with different cells. Others um, show a different uh, set of cytotoxic uh, protein expression, so they're more cytotoxic. Others can be more um, uh, cytokine responders, so, so releasing messengers, alerting the rest of the immune system to a potential um, danger. Um, there are also NK cell subsets that release growth hormones um, uh, or growth factors to help um, the, the immune system to regenerate cells that are needed during uh, an infection or a response against tumor. And then some, while NK cells are generally considered part of the innate uh, immune system, that is because they can respond very fast, as, as Evren said, uh, one of the first responders during an infection. In the recent years, we have seen that they can also um, show signs of adaptiveness. So they um, they learn to recognize certain cues and respond better to it. And these adaptive NK cells, they're, they're better, for example, in uh, performing ADCC, this antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So they're very responsive to, um, to stressed, infected, or tumor cells. Okay. Um... Perhaps this is a good segue, uh, Evren, to, to ask a bit more about how, how NK cells actually recognize sort of which cells to kill and which cells to not kill. Um, could you explain a bit about how that happens? I wish I knew. <laughs> In a nutshell, there are multiple different mechan uh, multiple mechanisms. It's very different than T cell or uh, plasma cell uh, strategies. It's it's not a T-cell receptor that dictates the response. It's actually a plethora of stress ligands that NK cells can recognize through their receptors. And uh, there are many NK cell receptors that can recognize these stress ligands. And it seems like it's a combination of these stress ligands and adhesion receptor and uh, that has to synergize for NK cells to pose a response form an immunological synapse and kill the target. And uh, the, this also is uh, convoluted by what we call killer immunoglobulin-like receptors as well through the HLAC complex interactions, which, as you know, HLA is formed, class 1 HLA is formed by chromosome 6, but different 
evolutionarily we have developed developed different sites and different receptors on different chromosomes that led to these HLA induced HLA uh, C Kir Kir ligand mismatch, for example, one of the model systems. And uh, this has led to some clinical studies uh, that showed efficacy in different contexts. And this is how you uh, can see that there is NK reactivity in the inhibitory receptor block uh, or inhibitory receptor mismatch versus activating receptor mismatch. These cures, to make it even more complex, uh, when we talk about killer immunoglobulin-like receptors, these cures, they actually can be activating or inhibitory. And the extracellular domain, basically the part recognizing this has, can look essentially the same, very similar. Uh, whereas the uh, cytoplasmic domain, the part that confers the response, uh, is different. So, yes, I don't know the answer to your question, what makes NK cell trigger against a target. Uh, I would love to learn that, and I think the coming decades will help us. But uh, ultimately, signaling, when you forget about all these receptors, the strategy in the cell is not that different among the lymphocytes. It's uh, one very strong induction of response. This could be what we call CD3 zeta pathway, for example, just like a T cell receptor does. NK, a lot of NK cell receptors utilize this pathway, which in turn goes through different pathways, including STAT. It could also be a viral infection and uh, recognition of viral uh, RNA or DNA that can turn what we say, call type 1 interferon response. And that, in turn, can trigger NK cell response as well. So again, and then allergy is totally another area where NK cells role in allergy, mast cell, NK cell interactions, and how NK cells respond to histamine. As you know, one of the approved strategies in AML is histamine plus IL-2, which really definitely affects NK cell population more than any other, in my opinion. Uh, but... Uh, there is, uh, there is definitely all these components with regards to allergy, with regards to infectious diseases, with, with regards to body's own response mechanisms. I don't know if I made you any wiser. No, I, I think this is hugely interesting and, 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 and shows something about the complexity of, of biology, right? It sounds to me like what you're saying is this, the cell makes a sort of critical decision at some point based on a lot of different receptor interactions, basically. Is that? Do you think that's correct? Yes. Uh, it sort of it sort of integrates the number of positive and negative signal it receives from a target cell, and then sort of makes a decision based on that. Basically, that is exactly correct. And the follow-up thing <laughs> to make it even more complex when it when it expo it's exposed to target one, uh, it can make the decision within the same receptor ligand interaction mix cocktail and uh, but the same receptor ligand interaction mix in target two may not lead to same response from the same NK cell which is very very interesting I think so it sounds like there's a lot of a lot of work still to be done on, on that side uh, that, that sounds extremely interesting thanks for this really good introduction to, to NK cells I think it's important because uh, it's it's clearly a cell that at least for me, has a lot more sort of going for it than I uh, when I learned immunology a few years ago. <laughs> and I'd like to sort of turn the, the discussion over to sort of what role NK cells play in, in cancer specifically. 
and secret. I'm 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 sorry that uh, um, we sort of kept you out till now, but I but I want to bring you in now and and talk a bit about some of the work you've done in in in, uh, in CLL patients and with precision medicine. So you recently published a case report in in Hematologica using a precision medicine approach for the treatment of CLL patients, where, where you actually found that some of the treatments you gave these patients led to a change in their NK cell profile. But first, before we get into that, could you perhaps Explain a bit about precision medicine and and how you are sort of spearheading this at uh, in Oslo and sort of a bit about the drug screen that you you guys used. Yeah, so I think uh, most people when they hear precision medicine, they think about genomic precision medicine, so that you find the gene mutation in the patient's cancer cells and you pair it with the targeted therapy. But our approach is functional precision medicine, which means that we use a functional assay to guide the therapy. And in most cases, that will be a drug sensitivity screen. So for the CLL patients that we are developing this for, we are doing drug sensitivity screens on CLL cells that we get from the patients. The patient that we studied as a patient case, he had uh, advanced disease and he had used all, or he had been treated with all available therapies that are approved for CLL in Norway. So there were no more therapeutic options left for him. And that's why we decided to do a drug screen. And then we could see that the cells were very sensitive to protosome inhibitors. And these are therapies that are approved for multiple myeloma. And based on that, we decided to use them off-label for the CLL patients. Yeah, so just to recap that, because I think this is actually pretty important. And it's a bit, it, what you guys are doing is, is pretty wild, in my opinion, <laughs> because you're you're taking a patient who's relapsed, it doesn't have any treatment options left, right? And then you take out, you, you, you take, is this cells from his bone marrow or blood? We use uh, peripheral blood. Peripheral blood. It's uh, more available, yeah. And and then basically you treat that with, how, how many different drugs uh, did you have in this screen? I think it was 95? Yeah, so we have a drug library now with almost 100 single agents and then 100 combinations, more or less. So we designed this... We designed this library based on what's already approved for CLL and what's in clinical trials and also some literature where they did drug screens on CLL cells and found new therapies that are working on CLL cells. And then off that screen, and how long does it take to do a screen like this? We can have the results in five days. So we first, uh, since when you take the CLL cells out of their natural environment, they will undergo spontaneous apoptosis. So we developed a protocol that... We try to mimic the natural tumor microenvironment, so we do a culture first for 24 hours. And then we can separate the CLL cells from the stimuli and just do the screen on those. And we leave them with the drugs for three days, and then we read the data and analyze it. And so based on the screen, you you come up with, basically you treat the patient with one drug, right? Or two, actually, sorry. Yes, we found in this case that it was sensitive to protosome inhibitor. And then we use the same protocol that is approved for multiple myeloma. So we did a combination. Okay. And so perhaps first off, how did the patient do? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was, of course, very nice that we saw that the patient obtained a partial response to this therapy. As I said, he had first received some treatments initially that he didn't tolerate. This was maybe eight years after diagnosis that he was resistant to the last treatment. And we know that uh, further in the disease uh, 
as the disease progresses, the less sensitive the patients will be to any treatment. So when we could uh, obtain a partial response, that was very positive. And he uh, could stay on therapy for six months, but then unfortunately it came back again. Okay. And and so um, one of the things that you, so I should say that this, this paper, I'll, I'll link to it in, in the end, this, along with the other papers that we're discussing today. But one, one of the things that you describe very nicely in this paper is that there seems to be a reshaping of the patient's immune response following sort of this uh, treatment that you gave based on your drug screen sensitivity assay. And and one of the, the cells that you found uh, expanded was the NK cells. Yeah, so uh, of course we want to also look at what happens to the cancer cells in response to different therapies. Then we did immune phenotyping. So that was actually in response to the first therapy that they also responded very well to. And then we could see that the NK cell population uh, grew really big after or when he was responding to that treatment. Do you think that's due to the drugs that you gave him, that they somehow stimulated the NK cell population? Or do you think it's more because that the NK cells now sort of had a better chance of attacking the cancer cells? It's a bit of an unfair question, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so of course, when the... When the disease is there, it's a B-cell malignancy, so almost all the PBMCs will be B-cells, and this we saw also before start of therapy. And then I guess it's natural that when you can kill off the B-cells, then other immune cells have room to grow. But uh, actually we saw that uh, when we compared to healthy donors, PBMCs from healthy donors, we could see that NK cell population was even bigger in the patient's PBMCs. Which is, I think it's it's a... It's an anti-BCLA2 uh, drug, right? So it's an anti anti-apoptotic <laughs> drug. Um, in, in, in the paper, you I think, I remember, if I remember correctly, you, you, you do show that cells following treat, NK cells following treatment are actually better able to, to kill K562 cells, which, if I understand correctly, is sort of a, a standard assay that, because NK cells naturally kill K562 cells. Yeah, but we also saw that uh, these NK cells from the patient could kill the CLL cells taken from the same patient sample. So that's, of course, we were interested in finding out if these NK cells maybe had a function in in the response to the treatment. So we found that these NK cells, when we isolated them from the patient samples, were able to kill the CLL cells from the patient sample. Thank you. That that's that's great. And I don't know if, don't know if you had liberty to say this, but are, are you seeing something similar in other patients that you treat that you sort of see this reshaping of the immune system in, in in those as well? Yes. So that's an important point, of course, that this is just one patient. It was a patient case that we reported. So yeah, we are trying to follow up on this and see if we can find similar uh, uh, phenotypes also in other patients, but it's too early yet. Thanks, Secret. Evren, you you specifically tried to to sort of tap into to NK cells' ability to kill cancer cells by using them directly as a sort of a consolidation therapy in multiple myeloma patients following stem cell transplantation, and and you really uh, you recently published a really nice paper about this as well. I was hoping you could tell a bit about the the motivation behind treating multiple myeloma patients in this sort of setting where it's after uh, a stem cell transplantation. 
very similar to actually how Sigrid is thinking. We were thinking about different combinatory regimens or preparatory regimens for NK cells to have the reductionistically have the best chance of responding. For example, in Sigrid's case, when we look at proteasome inhibitors or uh, different trans, uh, translocation uh, modifying drugs, um, there are soluble factors and there are direct receptor bound factors that are really predictor, right? Uh, one of them is what we call trail receptors. Uh, the other one is uh, basically proteasome inhibitors generally increasing the stress ligand expression uh, in certain populations. Not in every population, but in certain populations. So I applaud Sigrid for that. In our case, um, what we wanted to look into very reductionistically again is essentially to have a lot of our soldiers versus a lot of minimal enemy soldiers uh, that are not as armed. So what we did was we took NK cells at diagnosis uh, and mimicked an inflammatory milieu, an um, inflammatory environment, essentially in a bag on a shaker, uh, which we call bioreactor, uh, and then expanded these cells and activated them for three weeks. And then we froze them. We wanted to wait until the patients relapsed, but that was not regulatory-wise possible to wait that long. So what we did was we gave it at a consolidation step just after autologous transplantation in the hopes that in a later trial we could combine this with other concomitant medications that we can boost the NK cell activity. And uh, we tested uh, half a dozen patients, if I remember correctly, in that paper. And uh, what we uh, saw was some, sort, some responses. Uh, uh, we actually had 100% overall survival in uh, five years. Uh, and uh, progression-free survival was approximately eight months longer, six to eight months longer than uh, the uh, year, uh, the same cohort that went through standard tre treatment. So it does seem like it's okay. Uh, but it's, of course, only six patients, so there's not much to speak of yet. But it gives a good platform to utilize these NK cells with combination therapy. Uh, we are running a randomized trial right now. Actually, to my knowledge, it is the first randomized trial in the Nordics, at least, <laughs> that is looking NK cells uh, versus antibody. NK cells plus antibody versus antibody treatment alone. It will give us hopefully a conclusive answer if NK cells have a role in ADCC or not. Okay, so there's a ton of stuff to unpack here, I think. I guess the first question is, these are autologous cells from the patients, but not, not from the donor, right? So you're not generating these from the stem cell donor, you're generating from the patient itself. These are generated from the patient. So these are patients' own NK cells. Essentially, what we asked the patient at diagnosis is, uh, initially what we asked was if they can give us anaphoresis, just like a donor does. But compliance, uh, our patients are not that excited about giving anaphoresis, but they are more content with uh, giving one unit of peripheral blood donation. Uh, like a standard blood donor. And uh, we all, of course, prepared the safety aspect because some of these patients, if not most, are anemic, right? So we have the red blood cells ready if the, something goes wrong. But we donate, uh, they donated one unit of peripheral blood and that we expanded uh, NK cells from. 
Well, I want to touch on, on the last point, which is that you're saying that by combining NK cells with potentially sort of a, a antibody treatment against the target on the on the myeloma cells, uh, you can sort of have an even more. You're expecting to have an, a sort of a enhanced effect, if I understood you correctly. Yeah. And can you tell a bit about which targets that you're going after? Of course. So uh, not only us, but uh, a lot of groups are going to, uh, in myeloma specifically, because it's a long list. The highest list in myeloma is, of course, CD38. That is uh, brilliant. It's working really well in myeloma patients. It changed a lot of patients' lives. The other one is called CS1 or SLMF7 which is expressed on myeloma cells and on NK cells as well, especially the activated NK cells. That usually needs a combination therapy with immunomodulatory drugs. The third one is called B-cell maturation antigen. And the last one that we are quite excited about right now that I can disclose is GPRC5D, which seems like a very interesting target, especially in patients that were refractory to BCMA treatments and CD38 treatments. That seems to be a very exciting target. Uh, there are new targets that we are testing all the time. And we have two more targets that we think we will come to the clinic with uh, in the coming years if everything goes smoothly. One of them actually has been tested in other indications like lymphoma and CLO. And I think NK cells can ben uh, differentiate themselves a little bit with these retargeting approaches compared to CAR-T or bispecific engager approaches because you can really, Arnika can comment on that as well, you can really uh, differentiate or segregate the secretomic profile versus the direct killing. What I'm trying to say is you can really change uh, the cytokine profile uh, of NK cells are very different than T cells, so that might even be more alluring. So they're they're able to keep going and killing for longer, or they might be uh, safer uh, with regards to. Uh, okay, I see what you mean. Yes, yeah. with, uh, with regards to uh, gastrointestinal side effects, with regards to uh, central nervous system side effects that uh, cascade-wise T cells may contribute to. Yeah, I, I think this is. I think it, it seems to be me. There's a lot of sort of interest in sort of combining different therapeutic modalities, and and perhaps we should even throw in secrets uh, protease inhibitors here as well, if they sort of include, if if they induce stress responses that the NK cells, cells can respond on too, right? Annika, this this is a good segue into talking a bit more broadly about how NK cells are, are being used as cellular therapy. Could you? Could you tell us a bit about different types of NK cell therapies? CAR NK cells were mentioned right, just right now, for example. Yes, of course. So NK cells are already used in many, many different types of, of, of therapies. Um, the aforementioned uh, monoclonal antibodies, of, um, for example, they use endogenous NK cells' um, uh, ability to perform antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. And these are antibodies that target, for example, breast cancer or lymphomas. They function partly via ADCC. We already discussed the, the checkpoint uh, blockade therapy that works for T cells and NK cells, uh, PD1 uh, blockade, PDL1, the ligand um, blockade, for example. But then there are also um, checkpoints specific to NK cells, like the, the inhibitor receptors, the KIRS and NKG2A, that can be targeted or yeah, by blocking antibodies. And um, 
uh, interesting data is to be expected, I think, in these uh, ongoing clinical trials uh, from these um, checkpoint blockades and KSL-specific uh, checkpoint blockades. And then we can move on to the to the adoptive cellular um, therapy approaches. As the aforementioned um, autologous NK cell transfer or uh, allogeneic setting, both of which have uh, advantages in different in different settings. And here we can um, harvest NK cells, ex vivo expand them and activate them, potentially modify them um, during the expansion and then infuse them into the patient. Hopefully just by giving them a, more NK cells than they started out with, but also by having more activated NK cells or removing them, them from the inhibitory tumor microenvironment for a while, which can potentiate NK cell functions. And then there are a couple of newer approaches um, uh, in, in NK cell therapy, for, for example, engineering of NK cells. So similar to T cells, we can um, equip NK cells with additional receptors, such as CARs, chimeric antigen receptors, or similar receptors, not only CARs, um, to make them more specific towards a, a certain type of tumor or a certain molecule that is expressed on, on tumor cells. And then um, some researchers are um, engineering NK cells to make them more metabolic active so that they can um, last longer and kill more target cells. I think that's <laughs> It's a whole plethora of, of, of different options, basically. <laughs> um, so there is also uh, another strategy which is interesting to me, and it's probably the one that you, that has infused most number of patients potentially. I'm not really sure. Don't quote me on that. But it is actually an NK cell line uh, that was derived in 1992 in Canada, in, uh, if my memory serves me right, in Princess Margaret in Toronto, uh, called NK92, that has been tested, engineered as well, and tested in various different clinical trials. That has some cytoto that has cytotoxic function and that can be retargeted and can be used in combination therapies with and without lymphodepletion. Essentially, it is irradiated before infusion, so you don't develop a, a secondary malignancy. But uh, it, to date, to my knowledge, it's been safe. Hmm. Which is, is, to me, is like almost science fiction, right? That you can have a cell line growing and you can modify it any way you want and then inject it in. And I don't know, it's probably a good idea to radiate it before you inject it, but that is, that's quite impressive, honestly. Can I ask, where do you, where do you sort of see, you mentioned, you mentioned the cell line now, but do you, do you see this, this, the field sort of moving in a specific direction here, or is it sort of? Are people sort of spanning out and trying all these different kind of of modalities that uh, Annika just mentioned? I think immunotherapy goes in a sinus curve. So it it goes up and down uh, uh, different interest areas. And uh, right now we're testing agnostically autologous and allogeneic approaches. And truly agnostically, we're testing both. There are a lot of good things about allogeneic approaches uh, of the shelfness. There are a lot of good things with the autologous. One of the challenges, of course, is uh, availability of the autologous, right? Uh, you have the patient, but uh, it, it takes a while to uh, get that material back to the patient. And the, in the allogeneic approaches, as Annika was saying, uh, you can really do a lot of engineering and you can get pluripotent sourced allogeneic approaches, which 
may be the future. The challenge that is left, in my opinion, the biggest challenge to enable all of these on an equal playing field is going to be the engraftment, how long you can keep these cells in the patient to exert this function. Because you cannot have something that goes up and down. It, uh, it has to have a long tail at the end that has some sort of uh, activity longitudinally. Or repeat doses uh, that needs to be temporarily adjusted very well with other drugs. Imagine this, we were discussing antibody combinations. And uh, antibody combination is, let's say, you have an activity time of two weeks, one to two weeks. You want the, that activity to be best utilized. So you want during those two weeks, all the time, the NK cells to be there and fit and active. With other drugs, it's the same. For example, proteasome inhibitors, you want that continuous surveillance. And I think both fields need to catch up there. That's great. Um... Uh, Secret, perhaps this is a good time to sort of ask you a, a highly unfair question, probably. But do you think when using these sort of functional assays that you do, do you think it's possible to sort of look not just on how the medicines that you use affect the cancer cell side, but also if they sort of enhance NK cells, for example, or other immune cell subsets? Yeah, so the drug libraries we are using are so far limited to targeted therapies. And uh, yeah, it's definitely possible to look at other cell subsets as well. We have uh, developed the antibody panel where we can do really detailed phenotyping of the cells that are present in the PBMCs. So we could, uh, in principle, treat the cells or the PBMCs with the drug and then uh, do immune phenotyping and look at the effects of the different cell subsets. What's your feeling? Is this Will this be different from patient to patient, or do you think... It's possible. Is the goal to narrow uh, sort of the array of different drugs you can combine down to maybe something that you can try out more broadly in, in, a, in a bigger group of patients? Uh, if we're now asking what kind of treatments we can use for the different patients based on our drug screens, uh, I don't know. <laughs> now we are focusing on patients that have already used therapies that are available because we don't want to remove some options from them. And of course, we see some patterns in sensitivity, but we haven't, we have only treated this one patient. So we are now opening a clinical trial where we will treat uh, CLO patients with the protosome inhibitor based on drugs, drug testing. But we haven't yet planned a trial where we will screen for drugs and give the drug that comes out highest, let's say. But maybe in the future, what we would like to do is to move this earlier in the treatment line. If we could find a way to predict which patients would respond to those therapies that are already available. And if you could also predict adverse events, for example, that would be really great. So before we round off the show, I'd like to ask all of you sort of a bit of a, an open-ended question. And, um, and this is supposed to sort of uh, uh, make people laugh and then think a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping each of you would sort of share what sort of the best piece of scientific advice you ever received was and if uh, or, or just any advice that you sort of want to pass on to our listeners who are interested in science perhaps everyone we should start with you one lecture i gave at uh, microbiology and tumor biology center in the northern karolinska campus uh, when i was a phd student I, the year before my defense and I was talking about NK cells in multiple myeloma before any of these. 
And George and Eva Klein were sitting in the audience, and uh, George Klein said uh, after the lecture, Tumorimmunologists are true heroes as they try to dry the ocean with a hairdryer. <laughs> it stuck with me. What if we have more hair dryers? Uh, the, 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 I think uh, I think that is a that's something that stuck with me. It's really uh, you need to be a true idealist and really uh, be persistent uh, to be able to get through the obstacles because eighty percent of the work doesn't uh, of the ideas don't work and it's the 20 percent that you need to push hard yeah as long as you don't try to bring a hairdryer into the bathroom and try and dry out your bath i think it, uh, i think that's safe yeah, there, there is your model system <laughs> <laughs> um uh, okay uh, secret uh, do you have any advice you want to pass on yeah, I remember when I went to conferences like earlier in my career when I was a PhD student and so on, this question was always given to some of the speakers. And I remember that they were always saying, have fun with what you do, because otherwise, you know, you will not manage to do it. And I didn't, yeah, at that time I was didn't have that many worries, so I didn't quite understand <laughs> why they were always saying this. But recently <laughs> I kind of rediscovered this uh, recommendation because you get so many rejections all the time like from papers and grants that you never get and also the competition is getting harder and uh, I think it's important to just remember why you started doing this in the first place and do those things that you like to do and don't worry so much about the, the other parts. Thanks and and Enneke if you could <laughs> round off with with any good advice that you you received. I got advice from my uh, PhD supervisor, Klaus Scherer, who said, look for the things that don't work, that you don't expect or that, that, that function differently. And I think his advice came from the fact that that's how NK cells were discovered, kind of as background noise in tumor killing assays. Another piece of advice that, I, that I'm happy I actually followed came uh, during a Harvard commencement speech by Amy Poehler, the comedian, uh, who said, Find a group of people that challenge and inspire you. Spend a lot of time with them and it will change your world. And that basically um, helped me to decide where I wanted to work, what I wanted to do, because I really, um, you need people that are equally motivated and inspiring to, to do this kind of research. Thanks. I think that's very inspirational. Um, and uh... Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to ask if that's why you <laughs> you went to Stockholm. I guess <laughs> to be challenged. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, I I want to thank all three of you so much for for taking the time to to speak in your busy schedules. Um, we went through quite a large number of of uh, scientific papers from from all three uh, groups uh, today, and I'll be sure to to share them all in the in the show notes, which should be attached um, to any uh, platform that you're listening to the, this podcast on. I hope you enjoyed listening and do share and, and comment on the show on whatever online media platform that you normally use. And then until next time, thank you. Thank you.